this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. It's the podcast where I sit down with somebody who has lived a truly extraordinary life. So it makes sense that today my guest is a pioneer. He's a pioneer of the house DJing scene. You might not know the name Tony Manesh, but you will know the name DJ Fat Tony. He's worked with the likes of Prince, Madonna, The Beckhams, Jay-Z, Elton John, to name just a few. However, through stratospheric highs, he's also dealt with the lows. Facing addiction in an industry where excess is everywhere, he's been sober since 2006, and in the time since, he has continued to reign as king of the clubs. Well, until lockdown happened. So how does a DJ keep busy when all the clubs are shut? We're going to find out because DJ Fat Tony joins me now. Hi, hey. Katie. How you doing? Did you like that? <laughs> <laughs> it's really fun. It's really funny when people start reading stuff that you've done or about you. You know, your bio kind of like always makes me think it should, it should be my obituary. <laughs> Do you get what I yeah, mean? Yeah, well, it's mad, isn't it? it? And you're still quite young. It's quite a mad. Oh, thank life. you. So, I, well, I kind of still feel sixteen. Kind of, you really, know, when that's you. Good. Well, that's because when you go into addiction, you kind of stay at that age that you started mm. taking drugs or the addiction started. So for me, I'm I'm always like a 16-year-old. I mean, you know, obviously. I wondered if you separated your life into two separate lives of like pre and post, like now you're sober. Mm. Is it the same person or is it is it two different people? Uh, it's, it's definitely the same person. You know, people always say to you, oh, you ain't changed. But you know what? It's kind of like... The if you you know if you've got fruitcake and you take the alcohol out fruitcake what you're left with fruitcake mm. and it's kind of like you know my over the last 13 and a half years I've changed in so many ways the fact that I've learned who I am whereas yeah. before I didn't know who I was I was trying to find that yeah. And I guess if you're anaesthetised of a substance, you mm. don't ever get to know who you are or do the work because you're just putting, making that barrier, aren't well, you? You're kind of just running away. You're just constantly running from any feelings or any responsibilities. So there's no time to learn. You know, mm. you, you, you learn, all you do is learn survival in that, in that state. Whereas today I, I, I learn and I, and I continue to learn because that's what recovery allows you to do. So, you know, uh, I'm forever finding out more things about myself as 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 it goes on. Yeah. Mm. Do you know what amazes me about you is you know you've had this phenomenal career, and in that intro we only really touch on your <laughs> achievements. 
but you've also had this huge addiction. And normally in careers, addiction, you know, it destroys our career Mm. and it's the downfall of us. But it doesn't feel like that was the case for you. I kind of, you know, uh, it was because, you know, we, we, it's been like the rise and fall and rise again. You know, Mm. it's, uh, you know, addiction at the beginning wasn't addiction. It was, you know, it was partying and it was drug taking and it was, it was everything that went with the career of being a DJ and I was flying the world and doing everything and working all over uh, and building that up and building that up. But as that went up, so did my so did my drug intake and my alcohol intake. And, of course, mm. what happens is when you get an addiction, it, it overtakes everything else. So the career kind yeah. of went, never ever went away, it plateaued. It was always yeah. a ways and means for me to get more of anything that I had. Uh and then, of course, towards the end of the addiction, you know, I was just doing working to survive mm-hmm. uh, in the sense of I would, you know, do two sets, two or three sets a week. And that would allow me to to pay for all my drugs that I needed and everything else. And uh, and then after once I got clean, you know, it was about rebuilding that stuff. And the career kind of was put on hold. It kind of was really weird. It all kind of. I didn't DJ for a year or so, and then I started to rebuild and work out what I wanted to do. And it was taking it back back to basics about the, the true love of music that kind of enabled it all to completely spiral to where it is now. Do you think it enabled the addiction in that you didn't have a... You had a public role, but mm. unlike, say, a TV presenter, you didn't have to hide your addiction. No. Were you able to be open? Yeah, totally, using? totally open. And, you know, the thing about it was, the sad thing about it was the fact that I didn't have to hide it. And yeah. I so kind of... It was like a badge of honour, the fact that I could stay up for four nights without sleeping. And Is that I, actually right? Four nights? Is that yeah. How oh, yeah. I mean, the longest was a week, like almost a week, six and a half days. Oh uh, but by that point, I was hallucinating. My skin was crawling. You know, it, it was a terrible state. But, you know, when I was DJing, I got to the mindset that I, I, I DJed better when I hadn't slept for three days. You know, right. and, and that was it. You know, I can't DJ unless I've been awake for three days. It was bizarre. And I, I kind of celebrated in that. And people were paying for that car crash. People mm-hmm. loved that. And, you know, I, I would do interviews and in the interviews I'd say, you know, it's chemical scaffolding that that keeps me up. And I would just really boast in it because, you know, we are mm. we become what we are. Mm. And my whole life was based around drugs. Everything when I did. When was this, the 90s? So the- it, was, it, it kind of started, yeah, it started in the early 90s. You know, mm-hmm. after, you know, there was always, uh, I always had not a problem. I always had uh, a passion <laughs> for drugs and then the passion turned into a problem. Uh, so throughout the whole of the 90s and the 2000s, uh, it, it kind of spiralled out of control and, and it got really, really dark, very dark. What was your drug of choice? My then? drug of choice was uh, originally was cocaine. Mm-hmm. Uh, cocaine and alcohol. I never really... Throughout the 28 years of using and abusing, I never really thought that I had a problem with alcohol because it never ran out. Right. And it wasn't until it ran out that I realised I had a problem. Uh, mm. And with, with, with cocaine, I kind of, you know, because I come from an alcoholic background, I never, ever wanted to be an alcoholic. <laughs> I never mm. wanted to be anything, but I always looked down my nose at it in the sense of, like my boyfriend uh, at the time, his sister was an alcoholic and all my family. Mm. So for me, I was like, looked down my nose at them. I really reveled in the fact that I had a class A problem. 
Yeah, well, also it's different, isn't it? Having an addiction and having the means to fund it yeah. and live in a quite a glamorous lifestyle. It really was. Wrongly, you know, it, it, it has a different intonation than an addict you see in Soho on the street. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, in the 80s and 90s, it was actually a badge of honour to be on some form of drug. You know, uh, in the mid-80s, <clears throat> late 80s and early 90s, there was a massive heroin uh, uh thing going on in London, especially mm. in London nightlife. The majority of London nightlife was on heroin. It was the the drug of choice, but also, you know, anything else that came along I would try and mm. then top up on, do you know what I mean? And that progression yeah. from cocaine to crack cocaine to free base, you know, mm. there was always a, you know, if you free base coke, you always had a lot more money than everyone else. And so mm. that would be another badge of honour, it would be another Status. medal. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And everyone would be like, oh, what have you been doing? I've been on free basing. Like, you know, which hence it was like having a Lamborghini mm-hmm. of the drug world. Do you get what I mean? The fact that you could wash up coke and smoke it. Yeah. And of course, it's crazy. What, totally. And when that money runs out, it turns to crack. And then, mm-hmm. of course, the progression from there. You know, moving on to street drugs, from going from class A to street, it's quite a, a quite a, a, uh, a heavy thing. Yeah. Did you ever inject? No, I never inject. You know, I never did heroin. I always mm. say this: I never did heroin, but I used to, I used to boot, like smoke uh, opium, which is yeah. the same plant. But you know, in my mind, it yeah. wasn't heroin because I never injected it. But you know, mm. I, I remember we used to like I'd be on the door of the Wag Club and I'd send my friend to the all-night shop to get a Kit Kat so we could, and we'd say, you keep the chocolate, we'll have the foil. But it feels like this just, like how you talk about the Kit Kat, it became your norm and for everyone around you it was. It, it wasn't really, like you were this desperately sad figure that was in the loo alone secretly doing it. It no, obviously was normal. It was It was a very glorified glorified thing. And uh, towards, I mean, obviously at the end, it, it, it left me on my own in toilets doing it on my own and mm. locked in rooms, rocking backwards and forwards, pulling my own teeth out and other other extremities. But, you know, at the time... I, I read a quote that said you literally pulled your own teeth yeah, out of a screwdriver. Yeah, I pulled all... Well, it was kind of like a screwdriver and bits of wood. And, you know, I, I bite my, my, my nails and when I took cocaine, that would get worse and worse so uh i would always have my fingers in my mouth and of course you know when you drink pints of jack daniels and coke constantly from thursday to monday you know the mm-hmm. amount of sugar in that starts to rot your teeth then you mm-hmm. get the cocaine itself rots your teeth you know your gut oh. your gums recede you i was smoking uh 200 cigarettes in three days chain smoking wow. i would chain smoke constantly there'd be one that I would leave burn all the furniture in the house if mm. I was DJing there'd be people would like look you're not smoking the DJ box because you're burning everything because I'd leave yeah. one burning there one burning on that speaker it was the way it was and that would recede your gums and of course it was only a matter of time before I started to get gum infections and stuff and I would dig and dig and dig and the more God. drugs that I took the more numb my face become mm-hmm. and in the end I would I had this thing where I thought I had animals living in my mouth so I would dig at the gums and dig at the gums and literally just pull and pull, pull at the teeth I would get one tooth and pull it and in the end uh I had one tooth left at the bottom, which would like would move like that, and I would just constantly fascinated and obsessed by it. And mm. I would rock backwards and forwards, digging, and uh, yeah. And so when I got at the end of the using, and I come to, I had no teeth apart from one, and I had to have an operation to cleanse my whole mouth. 
to mm. a full dental oh. cleanse and I had to have to start the work to replace it up. It, just, it sounds just torturous. I mean, is it, is it fair to say you got to psychosis point? A hundred percent. You know, I remember when I went, finally got, went to a drug dropping centre to ask for help and I got diagnosed, uh, uh, um, I had a, a session with a psychiatrist to see whether I was stable enough to go to treatment and stuff and see what level I was at. And mm. I remember him saying, have you ever self-harmed? And I was like, no, never. Why would I self-harm? And my partner looked at me and said, you pulled your teeth out. And I was like, mm. yeah, but that wasn't self-harming. That was kind of, I'd normalised it. Mm. You know, my mm. psychosis had completely normalised it. I would, there were times when, there was one really horrible time when I was in Liverpool Street Station and I don't know how I got there. And people were morphing into the wall and I was having conversations with people that weren't there. And I, Scary. Yeah, and the police come and got me and I got taken home. And I was in my flat, having a party in my flat with about 100 people. None of them were mm. there. But in my head right, they right. were. And then I remember jumping out of bed and saying, oh, my God, the house is on fire. I'm running out of the house, no clothes on. And I hit, I fell and hit my head and knocked myself out. And I woke up in hospital and I still was, my mind was still shot. You know, mm. thankfully I came back from it. But, you know, it, I, it, it was one of those scary moments where you think, okay, you need to slow down. You need to stop. Never to stop, but you need to slow down, mm. you know. And sometimes I feel like maybe there were people around you that for their own selfish reasons didn't want you to stop. Because yeah. your life and soul, you're probably also the provider sometimes. And actually for you to stop would would take away from their enjoyment. I love you. You got it. So you hit the nail on the head because, you know, of course you're the party. You know, mm -hmm. those people, we surround ourselves with, with the yes people. You know, all the good people in my life by that point had gone. They become obstacles. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. anyone that said to you, Tony, you need to stop. Tony, look at you. You're not, this isn't you. I would get rid mm -hmm. of. Yeah. And I would surround myself. And, you know, my friend George, he said, he once, he says it all the time, but he said, the first time he said it was, you know, sometimes getting to you was like going through 20 people. Because I surrounded myself with like with different kind of people that stopped anyone, get anyone of that didn't want me to be doing what I was doing, I would I would mm. get rid of. And all of the people I surrounded myself with wanted me to wanted me to be that person. I think that's the sad side to being a celebrity and being wealthy is actually you do attract quite soulless relationships 100%. that can end up literally being the death of you. Totally. I mean, you know, those people don't want anything apart from drugs. They want, mm. you know, and also the sad thing about it is they want to see your demise. You know, there's a, mm -hmm. there's a part of them that thrive on you being on the floor in your own house or look at the state of him. You know, they, they, they gauge their own addiction at yours. They look at you and mm -hmm. think, oh, I'm not as bad as that. How did you, you know, how many years are we talking of addiction? 28. So for 28 years. How are you not dead? Like, how did you not die, <laughs> is, even just from an accident, not necessarily even the abuse? Like you know you said, what? In your I, head or? I, I, I truly, you know, I'm a very spiritual person today and I truly believe I'm on this earth for a reason. There's so mm. many situations where I should have been dead. Even as a kid, setting fires to the house for attention, mm. all the stuff that I did as a kid, I should be dead. Do you get what I mean? It's like there's been yeah. so many situations where I've ended up in the hospital and uh, crashed cars, 
you know, not I wasn't even driving them, but I managed to have a fight with the person driving it, so he'd crash it, and so many situations. And you know, uh, I like to think it's because I got big earlobes. <laughs> <That's, laughs> whenever I meet someone Japanese, they go, "Oh my God, you've got you're going to live long. You have great ja- great earlobes." But, but you know, it's it's for the grace of God. I really couldn't answer, answer that question because I did everything in my power to kill myself on a daily basis. Yeah, it's interesting. When you sort of engage in therapy, they usually try and sort of take you back and, and look at your childhood mm. and try and sort of give you reasons behind what led you to addiction. Um, and you've mentioned your childhood a couple of times. And, you know, although you're hugely successful now, you don't come from privilege. No. What was childhood like? Childhood was... I, so I, I was born in Pimlico. I grew up in Battersea. Um, my dad was a plumber. My mum was an early morning cleaner. Uh, we never... That. We never went without, you know, uh, my my dad was a great provider, but he was also a uh, a real man in the sense of, you know, he was six foot three, hand, mm. fingers like bananas. You know, he I was his first son. My older brother was from my mum's first marriage. He was mm. always in trouble with the police. He got all the attention. So for me right. as a kid, uh, I learned, and my, it's really weird, we're just doing a book at the moment, and my mum has been talking quite openly about my childhood in it, which things I never realised. Mm. I had a collapsed lung when I was three years of age, and oh I went into hospital, and my mum said that was the, that's when my life changed. Right. That's when I suddenly be- realised that I could get love and attention from being ill. So trauma, suddenly, yeah. yeah, so suddenly I would be always throw myself downstairs. There was uh-huh. always accidents going on. Yeah, as I said, I set fire to the house on a couple of occasions. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I made, up, I made up illnesses because I was getting that attention. You know, then my younger yeah. brother came along and he was my dad's golden child, you know. And yeah. uh, my mum says in, in the book that, you know, uh, when they brought him home from hospital, I said, please take him back. Please, please take him back. I don't want him here. And it kind of was like that all the way through, really. You know, I kind of resented him because he got the love and attention. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't cope with that. So growing up in that kind of uh, situation where you crave attention, negative attention finds you. And I got Mm -hmm. preyed on as a kid, like the age of nine and ten. I got sexually abused by a guy that was showing films in youth clubs. Of, right, okay. of course he was showing films in youth clubs. That's what they do. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And I started working for him and it wasn't long before he was abusing me. And that kind of just, you know, that changed everything. That changed my world. That changed. It sexualized me. I was 10. It sexualized me at the age of 10. And mm-hmm. that changed the way I felt and that kind of become my primary drug. Sex mm. became my primary drug. It changed the way I felt. It gave me an importance. It made me feel, system. you know, and although at the time I was being preyed on and it was being manipulated into thinking that stuff, mm. you know, um, and my mum had cancer at that point, so there was no one for me to turn to. My dad was heavily drinking at that point, so mm-hmm. that kind of changed it as well. The dynamics always changed in our house. That's so sad. And I think of 10-year-old you, so alone and being, mm. like you said, you know, vulnerable, mm. being taken advantage of, yeah. with nowhere to turn to confide in anybody. Well, also, you know, you had the added bonus of <laughs> the added bonus of me being a, a gay kid. You know, I never ca- mm-hmm. came out. I never had that 
I never was ever, ever in the closet. You know, I, my parents always knew I was gay. They always knew I was going to be gay. You know, I was running around the house in drag, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. As those kids of that age do. When And for me, my mum always knew that. But the kids on my estate didn't. Right. You know, so I, I was not only being abused, but I was also, I, I was very aware about my sexuality, but I was very, very aware that, the kind of man my dad was and his acceptance mm. of it and also society at that point in time it wasn't it wasn't the place where I could say okay look everyone I'm gay although they yeah. all kind of knew it and I didn't want to get bullied and, and stuff like that so I kind of had to live a, a lot a lie so there was already so much deceit going on I was covering did up you try the, and act straight then I kind of cover act, covered it all up with just being the most naughtiest little brat that ever was you know I would you know there was trouble I was in it always Mm. and and that kind of that became that badge of honour at that young age okay Tony's trouble he's a laugh you know so I a very early age I I learned to make people laugh was a really good shield we took We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Yeah. I had an experience once with somebody who wanted to, um, like, role play, uh-huh. like, um, like with relative stuff. No. Yes. No. That's a and hard I couldn't. Pass. And I said, I said, um, they no. wanted. They first said, da- like, dad, daddy, oh, and, and, and I said, um, well, that's not so bad. But um, so I suggested maybe, like, I said maybe the most I could do is uncle. <laughs> Okay, so that was just a snippet of an episode with actor and podcaster Justin Long. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and I'm telling you, you need to listen to the full episode on my podcast, Dinner's on Me. Over a meal at Pine and Crane in downtown LA, we get into his love story with Kate Bosworth, his career, and so much more. To listen, just search Dinner's on Me wherever you listen to podcasts. Also from something else. How did we get here? With Claudia Winkleman and Professor Tanya Byron. In these in-depth one-on-one therapy sessions, we dig deep into personal stories with fascinating and emotional revelations. A passionate, insightful, and moving experience with clear outcomes to each episode. He is as anxious about attachment with you as you are with him. Oh, wow. That's crazy, isn't it? Oh, that's a weird feeling. Wait, so... Oh, God. Don't you just feel like, whoa, why didn't I know that all along? Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast apps. You've made this incredible documentary that I watched a while ago, and I was actually 
I was gobsmacked, actually. It was so it's phenomenal documentary. It's been viewed by millions of people now. And there's this great bit with your mum where she's so just nonchalant and chilled out. And she's like, well, we always knew you were gay. We always accepted you as that. And it's just this beautiful exchange uh-huh. of pure love, unconditional love. You know, when I watched that film for the first time, that look, my hair's just stood on end. And, the, the, you know, the first time I watched it, they boys brought it over and they've like, look. And I watched it and it was that was the bit that made me cry and it still makes me cry mm. because it's my mum. It's my mum. Mm. And the reason I get upset by the film when I watch it uh, is because it's, it's the truth. And the mm. truth hurts. The truth she always hurts. And if it was a film of made up rubbish. Yeah. I'd laugh at it, but you know, there's, there's really poignant bits in it about my mum and my mum's such a, a beautiful, beautiful soul. Mm. She mm. really is. She stood by me for everything. And I mean everything. And you know, there's been times when I've been so wrong and she knows I'm wrong, but she won't say, Oh, you're right, Tony. She'll tell me I'm wrong. But at the same mm. time, to anyone else, she will stand up for me and stand my ground. And, you yes, know, and, yes. and she's, a, she's a, the, you know, if you had to sum up the word uh, of mother, she, that's her, you know. Yeah. Yeah, she's brilliant. Yeah. Beautiful. That's beautiful. So, you you know, you had to grow up pretty quickly. Mm. I mean, how did you end up defending yourself? How did this abuse stop? How did you break so, free? So uh, I can't actually tell you how I broke free from it. It's a part of my mind that's completely blank. Uh, I've mm. been having childhood trauma therapy on it uh, and mm. looking at that stuff. But you know what? It's really weird because when we started writing the book and I got to that that subject of him, uh, I got really ill. I got, yeah, I, start, yeah, yeah. I was really it's nauseous. A, a real and I, I had a really bad headache. And I said to Mikey, I'm doing mm. a book with, we need to stop. I've, I, I think I've got food poisoning. And uh, it wasn't, it was, what it was, was the fact that I was bringing that stuff up. Because in my mind, yeah. if I don't deal with something, it's been dealt with. <laughs> Do you yeah. know what I mean? I plow, yeah. I'm a plower. Yeah, yeah. So I will plow on and everything goes to the side, builds up and finally it falls in on you. So I've always mm. plowed that and I uh, never really discussed it with anyone because I, at the time I thought I was in control of it. Uh, mm-hmm. and I kind of just, you know, there's certain smells and certain things that remind me of the hymn. Mm. Uh, there's an area in King's Cross where he lived that every time I go past it, it actually makes me want to vomit. Um, mm-hmm. cause it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, well, he abused me once or twice. It went on for three years, you know, so, and everything yeah. in his power he did to me to make me realize that I was the one that was guilty of it. Uh, that and, and, yeah, and he basically stole, he stole, my youth, he stole that from mm-hmm. me. Um, and to, to talk about that stuff is really hard, but to remember it is even harder. Yeah. So yeah. my mind's like blocked that out. And, you know, shortly after all that abuse, I started to put on weight, which was mm-hmm. my way of, okay, I don't want anyone ever to come near me again. Yeah, so, I got so really you've got your own barriers. Yeah, at like mm-hmm. 13 and 14, hence the name Fat Tony. I, I, I weighed 18 stone at one point. When I was, like, I wondered where the name came from. So that is where it came yeah, from. Yeah, it came right? from that. It came from the fact that it was like, which Tony Fat Tony <clears throat> behind your back, you know? And I just owned mm. it. I was like, okay, I am Fat Tony. I'm going to own that name. Uh, mm. And kind of the moment I owned it was the time I started to lose it. It was kind of, you know, um, yeah. But yeah, that became my shield. And to look back on those days, it's, it's kind of, it's not because so much has happened because I'm a really good, I have a really good memory in that sense. I just can't remember what happened to him. 
and how I got out of that situation. Mm-hmm. I truly believe that I probably got too old for him. I, I've never, ever allowed it to make me who I am. I don't blame that on addiction whatsoever because that's that I was, you know, that I'm, I'm born an addict. It's in my wiring. How come you didn't ever think about throwing it all in and saying, I don't want to be a DJ anymore because look what this has bought me and look where I'm at? Like, to think you're, you go into nightclubs sober mm, and you do this job, mm, like that's quite unheard of. Yeah. I mean, when you learn... And and I say learn because you have to learn it the hard way. When you learn that you're not the party and that you learn mm-hmm. that the party isn't the problem and you are the problem, that's yeah, when life changes. so important. And I kind of, you know, I can go to any nightclub now uh, and do what I do because I, 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 you know, the greatest drug I ever have taken in my life is music. And, and yeah. I, I love what I do again with a passion and, I, it's my job. It's not my life. Yeah. I know where it took me and I know where it will take me. And the day that I do a drink or a drug is that I'll probably be dead within a week. And that's a fact. I was just going to say, without being too dark, it could kill you. Oh, it I mean, would. Do you know 100%. medically, how are you? Like, in Incredible, and... believe it or not. I've got one <laughs> blocked off. One, I know, right? I come from, you know, I never drank water for 13 years. I mean, and you're actually really gorgeous as well. Like it's so unfair. Thank you. I honestly, I never drank water. I, you know, I would look at bottle. Jack Daniels was made with distilled spring water. So for me, that was water. You know, <laughs> uh, um, I literally, I was so dehydrated. I looked like the mummy, um, and I just, I came through it. My liver functions great. Everything is is working perfectly. Uh, I have one blocked artery wow. in my leg, which I has become a problem, which I'm going to have done. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, and that's it. Maybe it makes you respect the body more because you actually think, you know, bodies can be ill, they can be shattered, they can go through trauma and they can they can almost reinvent and they can go to a second life. And then as you get older, you think, I've got to start paying it back a bit, you know? Well, you kind of hit the nail on the head with the uh, second life bit because, you know, for me, recovery really has been a second life. It's been the second chance. But, you know, it's about... But I think second chance... It has purpose, like, because now, you know, you're, you're going to make a film, you've made this doc, you're writing a book. So I always think Second Chance has purpose and you're, you're, you're being so honest mm. and vocal. You're not just telling the, the good bits that make you feel good. You're telling the truth. Yeah. So your Second Chance is maybe saving loads of people's lives. Well, you know, if I save one person's life, you know, that's, that's more than enough. And, you know, for me today, I kind of think my truth is my honesty and it needs, yeah. I'd, I'm not ashamed of anything I've ever done. Because I, yeah. I, I've carried shame. I've carried shame for a long time mm-hmm. in my life. You know, so by giving people that direction of my own honesty, I think that it not only helps them, but it really helps me. Because there's mm. something. Well, this is one of the extraordinary things about this is like your extraordinary trait is this resilience to not feel shame and embarrassment and to own it, you know, even talking about the name DJ Fat Tony, to say, I'm going to claim back that ownership. You are not going to beat me with this stick. Mm. I I am what I am. And actually that's not that bad. And then, you know, now to go on and talk all about the imposter syndrome, the addiction, and to put it out there so that it can't be weaponized against you. No. That's quite resilient. I I think that, you know, in order for me to, to just to be who I am, Honesty is a really big paramount thing because I know and I've learned and I all continue to learn that, that the minute that I bring any form of deceit or hold anything back, it, it turns into something really nasty. 
and it turns into something yeah. that I don't, the person, it makes me who I don't want to be. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that can happen really easily. So to stay on that path is to be as honest as possible. This is why I relate to you because, you know, I can be a bit of a self-sabotager. Mm. I can kind of be quite destructive yeah. as well. And, you know, I think I had a period in my life where, people were weaponizing things against me. And actually when I took the ownership and said, you know what, uh, this is who I am. This is what I look like. I'm not going to try and hide it yeah. or pretend to be something I'm not. I know it. I'm I'm informed. I'm educated. And it's not my weakness. It's my strength. So don't try and use it against me. And that was a light bulb moment. Because, you, know? you know, it's their weakness. It's not yours. And the fact right, that they use that, they, that, 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 that comes from a place of fear. And the fact that mm. you're doing that and you're being honest about that. A lot of people get really scared and offended by my honesty. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. how can he, you know, because what you're doing is you're bringing, you're, sh- you're shining a light on their defects. And when you shine a light on their defects, their wall goes up. And then therefore, how dare yeah. he say that? Or, you know, it's like with my mm-hmm. memes, sometimes I post stuff and people are like, Oh my God, how can you post that? We have that? to talk about this. Yeah, how can you post that? Yeah. But you know, it, it, what it does is it, it shines a light on their arm, on, on their defects and their loopholes. And they, you know, mm-hmm. it kind of like, it brings it to the surface. And of they course can't they don't sit like with that. that. Of course not. You mentioned your Instagram account, <laughs> which is like essentially you, you have this side career where you're this daily content creator and you literally change the way we feel every day. Thank you. you give us this content. It's, it's, some of it's funny, some of it's quite deep, uh, some of it's just hilarious, and we screenshot and send in our WhatsApp groups to our friends. But is is there a real depth to it in that you you're trying to give it's something me. to people? It's just me. You know, it's uh, the, like it, you know, there's there's no format to it. I mean, I I, I steal memes, I take memes, I where do you find all this over the stuff? Shit, I'm though. obsessed. So I will find stuff. I I I, I archive it all. Um, I have yeah. all on my phone. So I take stuff, and then I will remember a situation will come up, and I will remember. A, Oh my god, I've got this, and I will go and find it. <laughs> and literally for hours, I, I I'm on there. My partner Dave's like, "Get off your phone!" But it's like I'm just taking photos from different things and adding them. Yeah, to and, I love that. Uh, you know, but in the morning I do that thought of the day, and it's kind of you know I, I always think about what I post at that point, mm, and I mm. post, post throughout the day. You know, current situations, or I go you know a little bit below the belt, quite a bit. Uh, you know, and I get situations like yesterday there was a meme with. Uh, the Queen chopping off Captain Tom's head whilst knighting. Oh, I saw that, yeah. Oh, my God, this woman was like, you know, this is not funny. That You know, she, the, he was the saviour of coronavirus. He was the saviour for, oh, yeah, for COVID. You know, I find this disrespectful. And I was literally simply wrote back, it's a meme, fuck off. You know, and and, yeah. and and the fact that I wrote fuck off got more likes than that, you know. the Because it's yeah, like, you know, yeah. It's a, it is what it is, and and you know it. You know mm-hmm. people love to hate you for what you do, and it's like you know. Mm. I mean, I got really excited last night because Lisa Rimmer's following me, and I didn't even realize. Oh, you know, really? just like yeah, and yeah, I yeah. go for. I don't look at who follows me. I kind of know, and it kind of like you know, uh it it's fun. It's lightheartedness. Yeah, it's a community. Yeah, it really as well. is. And it's the amount nice. of people that messaged me throughout the whole yeah. lockdown thing saying you're getting us through, you're a hero, and I was like, thank you. Uh, you yeah. know, it is. You did. You really cheered me up. In it's lockdown. A, you know, my it's another arm of my insanity sometimes. Do you get what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, you got to yeah. laugh at every situation. People always go, "Oh, how can you do so many drug memes?" You know, when you're an addict, because I've lived that life. I can laugh at that life. 
Do you know what I mean? I You're find I yeah. find light in in every dark situation. There's got to be, you know, you've mm. got to to overcome something. You've got to understand it, and then you can laugh at it. You know. Yeah, it's interesting because you've talked about imposter syndrome. <laughs> That's my dog. And it feels like oh, <laughs> bless him. He wants his dad back. Um, you, you talked about imposter syndrome, and you seem like almost a bit of a perfectionist, perhaps. And you know, you have truly gigged for some of the most famous mm. people in the world. You know, you talked about the Beckhams. Uh, there was Meghan and Harry's wedding. Um, I wondered if there'd been like a real career highlight for you and if there is anything unfulfilled in terms of the aspirations I, of your I, career. I get asked this question a lot, what's the, what, what's the best gig you've ever done? And I kind of just think it's always say the same thing. It hasn't happened yet. Because you know what? There's always something else that comes along. You know, it could be the most mm. simplest of gigs that I've done and I just think, my God, this doesn't get better than this. And then it could mm-hmm. be the most lamb lavish flamboyant gig that I've ever done. I'd find myself, you know, like last year in a revolving 80 foot high revolving red cube in the middle of Hyde Park DJing. And I just thought, Oh my God, this is insane. And then I'd be on a plane flying to Miami to do some, somebody else's or working for Elton and just so many, I did, you know, doing the rocket man tour, like playing at all the premieres. I was like, wow. And then they Elton got me to fly and DJ at the Troubadour where he did his first yeah. gig and it was a real, things like that are a real honour, a real honour. And it's like, you know, and I just, I sometimes I have to pinch myself and think, oh my God, you were like, I was homeless and toothless 13 years ago yeah. and now I'm doing it's all this true. amazing, incredible stuff. Sounds like a meme, but it's not. It's, it's so true, you know. I had one yeah. pair of trainers I'd stolen from someone's house the night before. Yeah. That was it. That was what I had, except for I had the love of people that wanted me to get well. And I have to remember and that's that. And, the important and that is thing. the important thing. And today mm-hmm. when I do all of this stuff, this work comes in and I'm truly, you know, I did, just did Victoria back of birthday party from my own back garden. That stuff that's don't stunning. happen. Do you get what I mean? It's like you think, hang on, yeah, what's going yeah. on here? And, uh, you know, you? Uh, yeah. and I did a, a, a private party the other week with Mark Wahlberg deep dancing in his kitchen mm. to be on Zoom. Okay. And I'm just like, what the, what is going yeah. on? But I, and also at the same time I can go and do someone's, you know, someone like christening or wedding, like friends. And, and those moments are so special mm. because you know what it is? The fact that people love me for what I do and not I, who I am. Or, because you're a kind and good person. It's, it's amazing. You know, I, the, the, yeah. throughout lockdown, I was doing glitter box sets. Of the, you know, glitter box is this big club in Ibiza and in London, in England. And it's like, mm. you know, uh, and my my sets were being so well received. You know, I did when the Mix Mag film came out. I did. They do a thing called the Lab, where you go in and you DJ, and it's normally, yeah. you know, the people that watch it are really like you know bedroom DJs that love to slag everyone off. And I just thought, yeah, critics, yeah. The yeah. week before, they'd had this this gay club on there that had, had got so much homophobic abuse. And I rang the guys from Mix Mag. Mm. I said, "What are we going to do?" Because next week. I mean, the king of the gays is coming on me and they're getting that abuse. What's going to happen? And I I mm. was literally dreading it all week long. The film came out on the first day. Yeah, anxious. The, it, it, the, film, the day the film came out, it went boom. And I was just like, wow. Then we did the lab and the amount of love that I got 
it made me cry for every day. I was like thinking, oh my God, I'm really, yeah. it, I, you know, just that acceptance of my career. You need to be kinder to you. I do, yes. You're so talented I, I, and amazing. I, You know, I, I'm learning to do that slowly at 13 and a half years. I'm just now learning to start being kinder to myself and to find time, more time for myself mm. because I've, I spend so much time on it. other people and sponsees and stuff like that or trying to work with, on other mm-hmm. stuff that I don't hold anything back for me and I certainly don't hold anything back from my relationship sometimes and that's the most important yeah. thing in my life so lockdown's taught it, us lockdown really has taught yeah. me that that this situation uh was lockdown wasn't a situation it was a blessing for me to actually go back to realize yeah, that what I've got i.e with David and with Taylor being at home with them was was priceless Reset. and it really was it really bonded mm. my relationship and it just yeah yeah. The simple things, Katie. Do you know what? After 28 years of staying away for a week at a time and uh, pulling out your own teeth, I think your body could have done with a bit of downtime. You know that, so. right? You know that. I, you know. Definitely. <laughs> what a great way to thank end you. it. You know, I actually feel really uplifted by what you've said. Oh, um, thank you so much. Yeah. It's a real honour that you've asked me to do this. Oh, well, thank you so much. And it's been so lovely to kind of like virtually connect with you and just, do you know what? You give people so much hope because you genuinely nearly lost your life you came back all through your own determination self-belief resilience and i think this episode is going to speak to lots of different people in lots of different situations so thank Thank you you so much we should just say for anyone listening if they want to get your book watch your documentary like where should they go so the documentary at the moment is on youtube and on Mixmag, mm-hmm. it's on Facebook on Mixmag. Had three and a half million, three, three point one million on Facebook alone, and then it's had this and Excellent. that. It's so it's going on over mm. four and a half million. It's it's uh it's on there at the moment. You can go to Fat Tony on YouTube to my YouTube channel. There's all stuff on there, and the recovery's mm. on YouTube on Fat Tony. The recovery. Um, okay. Yeah, and just well, follow me on Instagram. There you go. Oh, and if you, DJ you know, I will want to say, as I always say to everyone, if you have got a problem and you get something from what you're, we've been talking about today, you can, you're welcome to drop me a DM and I'll answer yeah. you like I always do. Ah, and that's why you're lovely. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word rate and review the show where you got this or share on socials.